starting this morning, we'll work through a fairly brief series, really, of psalms throughout the summer, just a variety of psalms uh, in terms of the, the emphases of the psalms, and I'm sure it's going to be encouraging, and even just getting to hear some of the, the hearts of the men uh, from the church who are going to be teaching is a tremendous blessing. So, um, why don't you go ahead and open up to Psalm 115. That'll be our first one in this series, Psalm 115, and let's go to the Lord and ask for His blessing. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to consider Your Word. Um, it's, a, it's a grace to be able to do it not only in the church service where we gather there, but here in Sunday school where we gather to, to think, to study, to learn and grow. And we ask, Lord, that your spirit would make it so that these things are not just academic exercises, but something that impacts our, our hearts, our wills, our thinking, our actions, our priorities and desires going forward. We ask that you would shape us, that you would grow us, that you'd mature us as your children, and that this would be just a small part of that. We thank you for the chance to do that now. Please help it to be effective in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Psalm 115, as you remember last week, uh, Pastor Myrell talked a lot about superscriptions and, um, you know, a lot of the times how helpful those can be, the difference between those and the, the editorial summaries, um, which if you're looking at a version like mine, you might see Psalm 115, and then it says, heathen idols contrasted with the Lord, and even that I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, 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 that's that's part of it, but that's not really all of it. And that that obviously that's not a um, that's not a superscription. That's just an editorial title, some summation there. Uh, Psalm 115, as helpful as superscriptions are, has no superscription. So it's kind of a fun word to say, superscription. But there's no help there. Uh, there's some commentators that. Uh, Propose that, you know, this is a post-exilic psalm. If you look in verse 2, there's a little taunt there. And it says, why should the nation say, where now is their God? And so some commentators will say, well, this is a post-exilic psalm or exilic psalm because uh, the nations are looking at the Israelites who have been conquered and deported. And they're saying, well, yeah, so see, where is their God? But... The idea of a taunt like that is nothing really new. If you think about David and Goliath, for example, um, I mean, that was one of the things. Goliath walked out and he taunted the Israelites, and he taunted the Israelites' God. And that was one of the, 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 the central features of that conflict was David was going to bat, as it were, on God's behalf and God's reputation. And so this, this competition between the gods of the peoples, as it were, was nothing new. And it was really even at the core of the existence of the Israelites from the very Exodus. If you go back and reread that narrative, you see that God says, no, I'm going to do these, these tremendous signs of deliverance for the sake of, yes, delivering the people, but even more so, so that the nations will know that I am God. So all that to say, 
we don't really know when the timing of this <laughs> psalm was written. It's not necessarily post-exilic, though, because of the taunt, because that conflict of, of gods and abilities of gods of the, the peoples around uh, was, was nothing new. That, that, that was an ongoing conflict for all the time of the Israelites. Uh, Jews traditionally uh, have sung this psalm in conjunction with Psalms 116, 117, and 118 at the end of their Passover celebration meal. And they all have their, they're all Hallel Psalms, which are, they, they, they have to do with praise the Lord, that refrain there. And so they sing it traditionally at the end of the Passover meal. They all, 115, 16, 17, and 18, all have themes of deliverance and loving kindness and praise of God. Um, but again, that's something about how the Jews culturally use the Psalms. Um, in terms of classification, if you remember, it's helpful to think, okay, this is a psalm that a major emphasis is maybe lament or praise or this, that, or the other. And, and yet, Pastor Myro was very clear about um, the clay feet, right, of the classification system. That if you put too much stock in classifying, uh, then that can actually lead to imposing um, interpretation upon a psalm. And so, this psalm happens to be one of those that just sort of takes the whole classification system and just takes a bazooka to it, and you try to classify it, and you just you really struggle with that. Alan Ross says this about this particular psalm. He says, Psalm 115 is not easy to classify. It seems to be a liturgical prayer with a strong note of assurance, but in the collection, it was probably used more for its praise. Uh, Alan calls it a communal or liturgical lament, but Van Gemmeren calls it a psalm of communal confidence while noting its varied parts of lament, liturgy, and confidence. The exposition that he's going to go through will explain the different motifs of the psalm that have prompted these classifications, and as a result, and this is a good statement, the label will be of less value. Verses 1 to 2 fit a national lament motif. Verses 3 to 8 are more hymn-like, and then in verses 9 to 11, there's a changing of pronouns that indicate different voices, making the psalm liturgical. There seems to be a prophetic voice in verses 12 to 13, and it is followed by praise in verses 14 to 18. So all that to say, you can't really stick a good label on this one. But it's an inspired psalm with a purpose and an intent and a message that even if it defies some sort of neat little label, uh, we don't need that in order to study it and to benefit from it and to understand what the psalmist was trying to communicate through this psalm. And so just as Myrl said last week, remember classification is helpful only insofar as it helps us wrap our minds around the intent and meaning of the psalm. It does not define the intent and the meaning, but it can help us in understanding that. So let's read Psalm 115. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. It says this, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness because of your truth. Why should the nations say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, 
but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small, together with the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But as for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. Praise the Lord. And so you can see in your handout that I'm setting this up as three movements in the symphony of God's glorious character. Because that's what this is about. This is about extolling God's character, about helping to anchor God's people in an awareness of who God is and how that relates to them, to idols, to nations around, to attacks on God's person. And so this first movement here is God's character and glory in verses 1 to 2. And as I said before, the, verse 2 has sort of a, a set-up taunt here. What's at stake is the fact that some people around are saying, where now is their God? As in saying, your God is not really real. Your God does not exist. And so they're, they're taunting, they're mocking there's basically a challenge out there that's, that's communicated in verse 2. And the psalmist and the Israelites care about that. They care a lot, but they care for a specific reason, and they care for a specific reason, which is in verse 1. Your loving kindness and your truth, God's character who he is, how he conducts himself, what he says, his, his sincerity, his integrity, his capacity, his power, all of those things are bound up in this challenge against him. Where now is their God? He doesn't exist. He's not faithful to his covenant. He's not truthful to his word. Those are at stake in this. It's kind of similar to... Um, if you remember the, the, the situation with the golden calf, how Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days and the Israelites were basically like, look, we don't know what happened to this guy. He's gone. We haven't seen him. For all we know, he's dead up there in that huge storm. And so Aaron, uh, Aaron, make us, make us our God. And so he makes the golden calf and they worship and they party and they sin and they... They defile the, the relationship with Yahweh that they had already established. And Moses comes down and he chucks the Ten Commandments and he breaks the tablets. And, and God is ready to annihilate the people. God is ready to annihilate the people and start over with Moses. And Moses says, Lord, it's in, it's in Exodus uh, 32 verses 11 to 14. Moses says, Lord, don't, don't do that. 
Not because he didn't want to have to start over. Not because he didn't want to have to, you know, be the father of the nation or whatever. But because he said, we don't want the nations to say, look at their God. Look at what he did. He took them out of Egypt only to slay them and to kill them. Moses cared about the reputation of God. Moses cared about the character of God as it was perceived and seen and spoken of by the people and the nations around. And so it's the same thing at stake here. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth, because we don't want the nations to say, where now is their God? Loving kindness has to do with the, the covenant love and the faithfulness of God. Um, the fact that when, when God makes a promise, when he makes a statement of covenant and he attaches himself to people, that that is unbreakable. Loyal, steadfast love is at stake here. Truth, when God says something, he does it. He doesn't speak falsehood. And those, I mean, those are obviously just inextricably linked because you can't be a God of truth if you're constantly breaking your covenants. And the, the, uh, the, the inability to break that covenant is bound up within the fact that God is a God of truth. And he does what he says. And what he says is true. And so as a result, the call then is, in verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Note, note there, the psalmist, the people who sing this psalm are telling God to give himself glory, right? It's not, we're going to give you glory. It's, Lord, in this situation where there is this taunt happening, where your reputation is at stake, where your name is getting defiled, Lord, not to us. Don't worry about us. Take care of your name. Give glory to yourself in the midst of this scenario. The idea of glory here is, is especially in the Old Testament, you've heard Pastor Rick say this, kavod is, is, is a weight. Okay, it's a weightiness. The Think of glory as like the staggering reputation of being and respect for God's character that should only be given to Him. Because when you consider who God is, you're almost, you're almost overwhelmed with the weightiness of all of that. That's glory. And so where some people are saying, ah, where now is their God? There's the, 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 the cry of the Jews, the cry of the psalmist is saying, Lord, make your name weighty because of your loving kindness and because of your truth make your name weighty overwhelm them with the gravitas of who you are those people who are mocking you no one else has that kind of character no one else has perfect covenant love no one else is completely truthful but God's character is called into question in the moment and the psalmist's heart is not for his own protection not for his own reputation and not for his own comfort, but for the perceived weight and reverence that's due God's name. And the answer to the question is, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He's going to contrast that with the idols of the nations around in just a moment. But if we stop just for a second... 
it's really easy. It's not. It's really easy to think of times when God is mocked around us. I think God is taunted in the workplace. God is sneered at in schools. God is demeaned in our neighborhoods. The name of the Lord is jeered at on the TV. Everywhere we look, everywhere that we go, God's reputation, especially, maybe not especially since obviously it happens, <laughs> it happens all throughout history, but it feels particularly poignant in life right now in our culture where the name of the Lord is, is considered so lightly in unbelieving culture and often even in self-proclaimed Christian culture. The reality of God is regularly mocked and the weightiness of the Lord of the Bible is transformed into the butt of irreligious jokes or curse words. And so what, what should be our response in those kinds of situations? Well, we can take a, we can take a lesson from this and, and have our response be not to us. My reputation is not at stake here. My concern is not at stake here. But Lord, to your name, give glory in this circumstance. Give Glory to yourself, however you need to do. Use, use me, use us as part of that. But do what you need to do to vindicate your name in this situation. Because his character warrants that. The taunts or the mocking or the jeering shouldn't cause us to doubt the, the character of God. It should cause us to long for the vindication of God's character and to pray for that and to advocate for that. So that first movement is that God's character warrants the glory. God's character is the, the, the one that, that deserves the glory despite of and in spite of the, uh, the, the mocking that can go, around, go on around. The, the second movement here is God's character and other objects of worship. All right, so I, put yourself in those days and consider the fact that idols were the prolific object of worship in that day. I mean, the, the idea of idols for them was everything from a wooden pole stuck in the ground to intricate and massive statues of metal. I mean, if you think about um, ne the, the, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar wanted, wanted worshipped. I mean, just, just a tremendously ornate and massive thing. And then, and then you see that, you know, the... The Israelites even fell into worshiping along with the peoples around them, and it was just poles under a tree. But idols were the, the, the prolific object of worship in that day. And in some areas of life, it's the same today, right? Literally, there are still people who bow down to metal graven images or hand-carved wooden images in the world today. That's, that's true. But most of our Western objects of worship are a little less mm, concrete. But the principles still apply. And the principle is that idols, that is, other objects of worship, are dysfunctionally impotent 
to provide what the worshiper desires or needs and dysfunctionally impotent to do anything on their own behalf. And even as I'm saying this, I'm thinking about that wonderful story where Elijah challenges the, the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel. You know what I'm talking about? And, and he flips it on the head and he starts to jeer and to sneer at them. And he says, hey, hey I'm like, come on, come on. Maybe, maybe Baal's just busy. Maybe, and it says, I mean, the Hebrew kind of says, hey, maybe he's just going to the bathroom. You know, he's just not listening to you. And so just worship harder, ask harder. And, and he's just driving home the point that your God is not real. Your God does not listen. And this is what the psalmist goes through here. And he demonstrates their impotence. He says, they're silver and gold. They're the work of man's hands. And they're completely impotent. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. So what good does a mouth do? They have eyes, but they cannot see. So they're just useless eyes. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Okay, that does a lot of good. They have noses, but they can't smell. Again, pointless. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they can't walk. They can't make a sound with their throat. And so the whole point is they're impotent. They're useless. They're dysfunctional. They have no capacity, and they can't actually do anything on the on the other hand what when he says what can an idol say you know okay he has a mouth but he can't speak well we know that god speaks what 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 can an idol notice you know as you're as you're you know back in those days literally bowing down or as we may be tempted to metaphorically bow down before an idol, whatever that idol may be, what can it notice about us with its useless eyes that cannot see? What can the dollar or fame or money or possessions or wealth or those things notice about us and our lives and our needs and the reality of the situation in which we live? And, and, and the whole point of the psalmist is that they can't see anything. But God sees all. The idols can functionally do nothing on behalf of the worshiper. They can't hear their prayers. They can't appreciate their offerings. I think that's what has to do with the smelling because the, the, the sacrifices would be considered as an aroma. But they couldn't even smell that. They can't sense the hands that move it, the, the, you know, the, the statue. that You're like, okay, I'm going to put my God over here. You know, The statue can't feel the fact that you just moved it. It can't walk on the feet that it has to, to, to follow you to another place or to, to be aware of where you are and what you're doing. But God can do all of that. I mean, it's really interesting, I think, that everything that man makes those idols in the form of are imitations of what God has made in an effective way when he made mankind. Right? He made Adam and Eve, and he made them with eyes that see, and ears that hear, and a mouth that speaks, and feet that walk, and hands that feel. And in their, in their pale imitation of God and creation, man can't make something that does all that. But those fools who trust in those dysfunctionally impotent idols are said to become like them. And so it's important to realize that if you and I rely on other beings or objects 
for life and needs and put our trust in those things, we will become dysfunctionally impotent also and condemned to futility. We will say, oh, if only my job can do this on my behalf. Oh, if only my, my family can do this on my behalf. If only my wealth will accomplish this. And yet in all those things is just futility and impotence because none of those have the power to actually do what we're hoping for in those ways. And it's really interesting to consider this in light of Israel's past history with idols. Like it's, it's easy for us at least to say, well, I mean, yeah, well, who's going to really bow down to a little metal statue? But this was a potent point of concern and warning, right? Because remember Israel's history? They kept doing it over and over I mean, think about the, 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 the book of Judges and how time and time again they would fall into idolatry and they would walk away from God and God would bring some of the surrounding peoples to punish them and then they'd turn and they'd repent and God would bring a deliverer. And then what would they do? They'd go back and do it again. I mean, even Gideon's ephod was turned into an object of worship. And I think we're just as prone to maybe start to turn to those other objects, to, to start to put our trust in other beings or other ideas or other points of hope or trust or action. One commentator says, in the world of the ancient Near East, where the gods of the nations were depicted with human or animal-like images... Listen to this. A God who had no physical image was difficult to comprehend and embrace. And I think we would understand that, right? It's faith. It's difficult to comprehend and embrace the God of the Bible. Because he says, don't make an image of me. You can't. You cannot capture who I am with those carvings or with anything like that. And so don't even try. But that's hard. And we want to sort of quantify and label and all that kind of stuff. And we have to ask ourselves even now, what kind of God do we prefer? Do we, do we like a comprehensible and tangible and controllable and relatable and impotent gods in our lives? Or, or do we like powerful, complex, incomprehensible and sovereignly unique God? But like Joshua said back in the day, hey, Israel, choose this day whom you're going to serve, the gods back in Egypt or the gods across the river. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Despite the complexities and despite the intangibles and despite the, the difficulties of being able to, to comprehend him. Because only one of these deserves the glory. Ultimately, we wind up being self-seeking for our own glory if we choose to look away from God's character to another object of worship. And so he moves from that then, having, I think, rather effectively shown the futility of the character of those gods, and he, 
He, he, the psalmist, though, is not content to leave it at simply exalting God. Instead, he also here in the third movement extols the joys and blessings of being the people of this God who deserves all this glory. Movement three, God's character and his people. This section it was perhaps, perhaps it was antiphonal. Because remember, these are songs. They were, they were to be sung. Okay? And so perhaps it was antiphonal, meaning call and response, a little back and forth. I'm tempted to do it right now, but we won't, okay? But perhaps it was a leader and a group, you know, and we, we read it. Maybe it was the leader saying, oh, Israel, trust in the Lord, and the people would sing back, he is their help and their shield. And then the leader would sing, oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord, and the people would sing, he is their help and their shield. And then the next, the third refrain also. Or maybe, <clears throat> maybe there were three different groups of people. And one would call to the other and say, Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. And then another would call to the others, Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. And then another would call to all, You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. We don't know for sure, but I love the thought. It's a rich thought. And it's, it's like what we seek to do on Sunday mornings is to speak to one another, to encourage one another, to instruct one another. Even with our songs, as you lift your voices, recognize that you are ministering not only praise to God, but encouragement and truth and admonishment to one another. We have three different groups here. Israel, the ethnic people descending from, descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are called to trust in the Lord. The house of Aaron, the, the clergy of the day, the, the tribe descended from Aaron, the priestly descendants responsible for facilitating the worship of the people, they're called to this. And then you who fear the Lord, I think that's just a broad umbrella term that also brings in anybody who maybe were, were proselytes of the faith. Anyone who fears the Lord, maybe it wasn't even an, even an implicit invitation to the nations around you who fear the Lord, come, trust in the Lord. So we've just finished seeing what happens to those who trust in the idols. Well, those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts them, they'll become impotent. They'll become futile. But where should the people of God put their trust? And they're called to put their trust in the Lord. Trust as in utter reliance and confidence we see this in Isaiah. If you want to flip over with me to Isaiah chapter 30. This was at the, the, cent, the center point of a lot of the conflict between the Lord and His people. This is one of the greatest desires of God's heart for His people to have this kind of a relationship with them. Isaiah 30, verse 12, Therefore thus says the Holy One of Israel, since you have rejected this word, God's word through the prophet to the people, and have put your trust, there's our word, reliance, your confidence, you have put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them, therefore this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar, so ruthlessly shattered that a shard will not be found among its pieces, to take fire from a hearth or to scoop water from a cistern. For thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, He has said, in repentance and rest you will be saved, 
in quietness and trust in the Lord and His Word is your strength, but you were not willing. God wants a people who trust in Him. Not on the man-made idols around, not on the man-made contraptions around, not on the man-made philosophies around, but who trust, who rely, who have utter confidence in Him, in His covenant love, in His faithfulness, in His truthfulness, in His character, that character which is so weighty that it deserves all the glory in any situation and every circumstance that you find yourself. That is what God wants and it's easy to give lip service, but sometimes we're a little bit like the situation that James Boyce says in his commentary. He says, do you trust him? We say we do, but do we trust him really? I think of the famous acrobat of the last century, Jean-Francois Gravelet. I'm assuming he's French, known as Blondin because of his blonde hair. His most acclaimed feat was crossing Niagara Falls on a tightrope 160 feet above the water. On one occasion, he went halfway across, I don't know how he did this, stopped to cook an omelet, ate it, and then went on to the other side. Anyway, on another occasion, he carried his manager across the falls on his back. Afterward, he turned to a man in the crowd and asked him, do you think I could do that with you? Of course, the man said, I, I just saw you do it. Well then, said Blondin, hop on and I'll carry you across. Not on your life, said the bystander. And so it is with us. We say we trust God, but when it comes to an actual test, we fail to believe Him. That's a poignant illustration of the lip service of trust. Even having seen, read, observed God do be something, and yet um, when, when the time comes for the the situation to become reality in our own lives, then we fail the actual test of putting our reliance and our faith in Him. Why, why are they told to trust in Him and to put that utter reliance on Him? Look, look at that repeated refrain starting in verse 9. Trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord. Why? He is their help and their shield. He is their help and their shield. He is their help and their shield. Help Help is the, the strength for victory. Uh, the, um, the first original verse of, um, I think it was the first verse, of Come Thou Fount, had the song, here I, or had the verse, Here I Raise My Ebenezer. Remember that old one that then got cut out in future versions and things like that? Well, that, that etzer, okay, is the idea of help. Ebenezer, Evan Etzer, stone of help. They raised a stone as a, as a remembrance of God's deliverance for the people. That was an Ebenezer, so it's not just Scrooge, but it's a, a way of remembering that God was their help, their strength for victory and deliverance. And this is what the word is here. God is your strength for victory. And not only that, but he's their shield, their protection from harm. The people of God back then and now are called to recognize God as their help and their shield and as a result to put their full reliance upon Him. But there's very much a proportionate relationship here. As, as we understand 
God's strength for victory and God's ability to protect from harm, we trust. As there are holes that are poked in our understanding of God's strength for victory or God's care for us and protection from harm, so our trust is diminished and pockmarked. What does this look like? What are we inclined to view as a help or shield? Or what are we, what are we inclined to put our, our trust in? And I'll be honest with you, oftentimes in life, my, my first response that I have to, if I'm not fully aware of, my first response is not turn to the Lord. My first response is, what can I do? How can I work this scenario out? How can I provide a solution, a, a resolution, a fix to whatever it may be? And you could extrapolate that out to friends, to family, to wealth, to job, to fame, to whatever the case. But what do we turn to in the midst of life? And the psalmist encourages the people, recognize who your true help and who your true shield is, and trust. Put your trust in the Lord. Putting our trust in Him is the surest way to stability, safety, provision, because of His character and because of God's thoughtfulness of us. Look at verse... Um, I lost it. Totally lost it, and now I'm panicking in my head. <laughs> um, the 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 God has a very intentional thoughtfulness of who we are and where we where we are and what is going on. Think of how how Jesus. It's very easy to doubt this, but think about how Jesus says that we, we know that God knows the very hairs of our head. And we see here in this passage where he says, ah, oh, there it is, verse 12. Man, the Lord has been mindful of us. The Lord has been mindful of us. It's a reminder to God's covenant people that the God of their covenant is thinking of them intentionally. He's deliberately remembered and he's called to mind their place, their needs, their relationship with him. You are not in a situation that God forgets you. No matter where you're at or what you're going through, God does not forget you. And it's not the kind of remembering that happens where if you're like me, you get up from room A and you go to room B and then you have no idea why you went to room B and so you go back to room A and as soon as you get back to room A, you suddenly remember, oh yeah, I went there to get my screwdriver. And then you go back to room B. It's not remembering like that, like I forgot and so poof, oh, ooh, now I remember. It's not that. It's a deliberate calling to mind and fixing the mind and attention upon us. Verse 12, the Lord has been mindful of us. The writers of the translator's handbook of the Psalms, and I put some of these quotes in the back of that handout. 
He says, when used of God, the verb remember means more than just an act of recalling something that happened in the past. It, it's not just a fleeting recollection, but it's a positive activity. It's to become aware of, to adopt an attitude that will lead God to take action on behalf of his people. And so the translation can be, the Lord will not forget our needs. So because of the faithful God who is so glory-deserving and his intentional mindfulness of us, we can then be assured of his blessing. And if you're like me, blessing can be a funny word sometimes. Okay, so wait, wait. I'm supposed to bless God, and, but he blesses us. And some people say, well, it's just the same word as praise. Okay, so I understand I praise God, but God praises us? And what is the and the blessings he give. What are praisings? Like it's, it's no, 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 no. There's, there's, there's got to be more. It's, it's kind of a funny Christianese term. Hey, I'll pray that God blesses you. Okay, thanks. What, what does that mean? Hey, man, I know you're in this hard situation. Just bless the Lord. Okay. What is it? What is it? What does bless mean? And like I said, oftentimes it's just equated to praise, but God is said to bless us and to give us blessings. And that doesn't that doesn't parallel right there. So it's not just a synonym for praise. Again, on the back of your handout, the theological word book of the Old Testament puts it this way. To bless in the Old Testament means to endue with power for success, prosperity, <laughs> fecundity, longevity, etc. I'm sure there was an easy word they could have used there. However, it could be descriptive, as in blessing or blessed, an acknowledgement that the person addressed was evidently possessed of this power for abundant and effective living. This address becomes a formalized means of expressing thanks and praise to this person because he has given out of the abundance of his life. Very commonly, the Lord is addressed in this way. It's significant that chesed, or kindness, covenant love, which is one of the words in verse 1, and emet, or faithfulness, or truth, the other word in verse 1 for us, that those words are very frequently those attributes for which God is praised. It is clear that for the Old Testament, the abundant life rests directly upon the loving and faithful nature of God. And so what we see here at the core of the word blessed or blessed or bless is the notion of the power, the wellspring of the goodness from which one can give to others. God blesses us by providing for us out of that wellspring. Those are the blessings that he provides. And he is blessed because he's the ultimate source of all those good provisions. Like James 1.17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift come, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. You hear hints of covenant love and truth. In that, right? And so when we then bless God, which is interesting because in verses 12 down to, to, to 16, it's about God will bless you, bless you. But then in verse 18, we will bless the Lord. And so when it's said that we will bless the Lord, we are attributing to Him the capacity, okay? We are attributing to Him the capacity for giving and providing in ways that only He can do. That's what it means to call God blessed. That's what it means to call God blessed. That's what it means to bless Him. 
It's not contingent upon him actually providing every possible good gift, but it's a recognition of his capacity to do so. Think of Job. Right? Job chapter 1, he lost his children, his servants, his animals, his property, and he proclaimed in that moment, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away, and then what does he say? Blessed be the name of the Lord. It was all gone, and it was going to get worse as he lost his health. But he said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Job was in that moment directly attributing to God, whether God gave it to him or provided it to him or not, Job was saying, God is the wellspring from whom all good things come. And it's all from him and it's up to his prerogative about how much he does or doesn't give, but God is the blessed one. So hopefully that helps you understand the word bless a little bit more fully. Uh, it's not just a synonym for praise. And here the psalmist rejoices that God, their help and their shield in whom they trust, is mindful of them and will bless them. He will give good gifts. He will provide for their needs and he will bless them all. In verse 12, he will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord. And then he's very inclusive here. The small, not like, you know, diminutive in stature, but small as in insignificant, small as in the least of those people. The small together with the great. This is the God who will bless them all. And verse 15 serves to alleviate any doubt of God's ability to bless. I mean, think of this. May you be blessed of the Lord. Well, verse 14, may you, the Lord give you increase, you and your children. That's, that's the description of that blessing. May you be blessed of the Lord. And who is this Lord? This Lord is the maker of heaven and earth. You doubt whether God can bless you in a particular area? Put that up. Measure that against God's ability to make the heavens and the earth. And put your doubts to rest. The only question at hand is whether God in his sovereign goodness and providential care for you and I will decide to actually do those things for our good and for his glory. Everything, though, is within his power and in his capacity. He's the maker of heavens and earth, right? Don't doubt that. Don't doubt that. And he riffs off that theme. He says, the heavens are the heavens of the Lord. That's his domain. But God has given a stewardship. But to the earth, he, the earth he has given to the sons of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But as for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. Alan Ross says, those who trust and serve the Lord will enjoy his blessing and that blessing promises a glorious, unending future in His presence. In contrast to the righteous, the dead will not praise the Lord. They are going down to silence. The reference here is to the shadowy existence and the life to come for unbelievers. They had no relation with the living God. They will go down to the land of silence, still excluded from the covenant people of God and from God Himself. But the righteous will not be silent. They will bless the Lord from now throughout eternity. So it's important just to realize you and I 
We, we have a deep privilege. We have a tremendous stewardship, something that only those of the faith can do. Unbelievers cannot bless the Lord. The dead cannot give testimony of God's goodness to the watching world. But you and I can. Brothers and sisters, in every circumstance, we have the timely, the timely stewardship of making known the character of God, making known the character of our blessed God, proclaiming His praise, responding to life in ways that reveal our trust to be in our covenant, faithful God who is so much more powerful and capable, capable than any man-made copy or wannabe could ever. So remember, let this psalm be an instruction that in the symphony of life, we are not the theme. Our glory, our desires, they're not paramount. So let this be our theme. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give the glory. When we succeed in life, sing that out. When we encounter hardship, let that be our prayer. When we come across seemingly unfathomable circumstances, let it be our response. And when the reality of the Lord is mocked or demeaned, may our greatest desire be the glory of the Lord's name and character as we live our lives in rest on His unshakable nature of loving kindness, truth, and blessing. And let's all say together the last three words. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, you are worthy of all glory. I repent now of the times when I try to take that, of the times when I give that to other beings or people, or when I, when I attribute them weight, when I attribute myself weight of importance and, and priority. God, help our, help our minds to be fixed rightly, our hearts to be oriented rightly on your character, and that we would interpret all of life's events accordingly, always seeking your glory, desiring your glory above our comfort, above our own reputation above our own provision, your glory, because you deserve the glory, you and your character alone. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you're dismissed, and we'll be back at 1045.